worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. They'll eat your guts and spit them out. And when your bones begin to rot, the worms remain, but you do not. So don't ever laugh as a hearse goes by. For someday you'll be next in line. And when death brings his cold despair, ask yourself, will anyone care? Macabre may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> Sorry about I that. Just, we had a cat incident. Okay. <laughs> I just envision you taking one cat out and then another cat runs in. <laughs> and then you take another cat out and another one runs in. It was like a fucking like sitcom. Funny. Like, I'm like, please no. Not right now. Hilarious. <laughs> So welcome back, everyone. My name is Holly. I'm Blair. We are the Ladies of Macabre. And today I am going to be covering the letter E. And this episode is E for embalming, but I've also named it E is for everyone rots eventually, question mark. So if you you haven't figured out from the title of the episode, I'm going to be talking about not just embalming, but body preservation techniques throughout history. And I'm not going to cover all of them because we would be here indefinitely. So I'm going to talk about kind of the ones that stand out to me and are interesting and some maybe you might know a little bit about, but not a lot about, and then some you probably have never even heard of. So Blair doesn't really know what she's about to get into. But as always, I like to keep it macabre. I like to keep it a little bit gross, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, a little bit appalling because that's what we're here to do. And as you know, learning things about history that we didn't learn as kids, I just, I don't know. I like to know all the things. So here we are. You may have noticed the opening of the episode, kind of the theme music, and you're probably wondering if you're not familiar with it, where it might have come from. But if you grew up in the 80s like I did, you recognize that song as the Hearst song. And again, I'm giving away my age, but the Hearst song back in the 80s was made famous by a macabre series of books written by Alvin Schwartz which Blair, you probably know which one I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And I honestly thought that the Hearst song came from that book, but it, it didn't. There are different versions of that song and the origins actually go back at least to World War I, if not further back to the Crimean War, and there's one source that says it even goes further back than that. But Damn. where it initially came from, no one really knows um, when it originated or where it came from. But as folklore does, it kind of, you know, passes down through the generations and the lyrics change. But to be honest, for me, growing up in the 80s, that song and that series of books was my first real exposure to the idea of decomposition and the idea of what happens to our bodies after we die. That was just something 
I was unfamiliar with at the age of eight. So it really made an impression on me. And to be honest, it was probably, it might be one of the things that made me interested in the macabre and kind of shaped me into the weird human that I am today. (laughs) I'm probably not alone in that thought. Um, Did you read the books as a kid? I did. And I definitely think that it helped spur more for me as well. I've always all the interest. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. As disturbing as that song was, or the lyrics, poem, however you want to say it, it really opened my idea to impermanence. And honestly, it made me never want to be buried. (laughs) Because the idea of like, I don't know, you're just your body decomposing. I just like, can we just not do that? I don't know how to not do that. But (laughs) I'm not okay with it. And neither were our ancestors. They invented creative ways to forego the decomposition process as long as possible. And I know that was a really long introduction, but I wanted to kind of ease you in because today I've got human jerky, human rock candy, and other forms of body preservation throughout history. Oh, I'm ready. I'm coming into this completely in the dark. (laughs) That's the way I like it. All right, let's get into it. In some form or another, body preservation exists in nearly every culture throughout history. And the motives for body preservation have both practical and spiritual contexts in each culture. In modern times, the act of body preservation delays decomposition, which allows us the opportunity to mourn our dead and hold on to the image of our loved ones as they were in life before they are permanently interred beneath the ground. It allows us a certain kind of closure and it provides a level of dignity for the deceased as they transition into the afterlife. You're going to hear me pause every now and then because my mouth is already dry. (laughs) It's okay. I know. I just had coffee and I'm like, you can't see me, but I'm like over here trying to quietly sip on my water because I'm I'm that way too. (laughs) All I can see is my page in front of me. So ancient Egyptians believed that the preservation of the physical body was actually necessary for the deceased to enter their next life. If the body was not properly preserved, the soul could not re-enter the body in the afterlife. And the ancient Egyptians practiced mummification as far back as 3200 BC. So for a really long time, humans have been trying to save the dead, carry the spirit into the afterlife. And again, we've just come up with creative ways to do this. I'm so glad you're talking about the Egyptians. I was wondering if this was going to play a role and I am so happy. <laughs> you have, you kind of have to start here, I feel like, yeah. because to be honest, that technique still holds up today. And I'll talk mm-hmm. a, a little bit about that too. But if you say the word mummy out loud in a crowd, most people are going to think about the classic mummy movies. Yep. Boris Karloff might yep. come to mind for anyone who's seen the classic universal horror film, The Mummy. But my personal favorite is the one with Brendan Fraser. Oh my <laughs> so gosh, let's, let's not forget about that, Jim. I have that on my rewatch list every year. Yes. And I think we all have an idea of how mummification works. And, you know, it's something that you might have touched on a little bit in school. But I have a few things that I want to add to the conversation that might be 
little bit different that you may not know about the actual technique. In Egypt, mummification was actually performed by special priests called sem priests. And I hope that I'm saying that correctly because I don't honestly know if that's the right pronunciation. So if I'm wrong, please tell me. <laughs> the sem priests performed mortuary rituals and conducted funeral services for the dead. Their job was sacred because they performed the necessary incantations that would ensure that the deceased had an eternal afterlife. And these priests were highly revered in their culture and took painstaking care of the dead to ensure that the body was perfectly prepared so that the deceased could enter the afterlife. And I hear your little kitty in the background and cats were also very yes. important in the Egyptian culture. Um, I don't know if they were considered guardians of the dead or if they helped to transport the soul into the afterlife, but I know that cats were like a huge icon in the Egyptian culture. So it's just funny that your cat is <laughs> making its presence known as we're talking about this. Ari is like, and don't forget about cats. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually leave that out. So I'm glad. Did that, you? Um, yeah, I did. I did. Okay. Yeah. They were obsessed with cats. Funny. <laughs> yeah. So back to the priests, the priests often worked in small groups and they basically had their own little cliques. And unfortunately, the sem priest whose job was to make the incision to remove the organs from the deceased was insulted by his peers and was even chased down the road after the deed was done because they thought it would ward off evil spirits associated with causing injury to the body. Ooh. So it sounds like they had to kind of keep this position on rotation. <laughs> <laughs> so you had this one guy in the group whose job was to make this cut, and he was the only one that got a bad rap. <laughs> so I think, I'm guessing this assignment of position was like a political thing. Whatever For whatever reason, this guy you know, got this job and no one else wanted it. So maybe he just drew the short straw when they were passing out occupations in ancient Egypt. I'm not it was sure. It was the new guy. Yeah, the rookie. <laughs> <laughs> that, that actually might be true. Uh, the people kind of that were in charge of wrapping, the, like wrap the digits individually, and then they would go in with the bandages and wrap the entire hand. They mm -hmm. probably were the people who'd been doing it the longest because it would be really important for the process. Right. I could definitely see that. Yeah. The process of mummification began by first removing the organs of the dead. This was necessary because the organs decayed faster than the rest of the body. The organs of the abdomen and the chest were removed by making a cut on the left side of the abdomen. The heart was left inside because they believed it was the center of the soul and housed their intelligence, and they would need that going into the afterlife. The brain, this is one of the gross things, and <laughs> people probably know this, but I'm just going to tell it to you in a different way. The brain yes. was removed by inserting a special hook into the nostril. The hook mm. was swirled around scrambling the brain until it liquefied or was able to be removed in small pieces through the nostril. They would then tilt the head forward so the goop, the rest of the goop could run out. Yeah. Ooh, the original Scrambled brains, 
Yeah, there was no <laughs> And then, you know, once that part was done, they would remove the intestines, the organs. Once those were removed, they would put um, the organs in four different preservation jars called canopic jars or canopic jars. Uh, and they were entombed with the deceased. One jar would hold the lungs, one jar held the liver, one held the intestines, and the final jar held the stomach. I know that they had heads of different gods on the jars. Okay, good, good. Okay. Yep, yep I'm going <laughs> there. Like, there's a, they were specific to each, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the, the I'm glad that you brought that up. That's um so the number 4 was significant because each jar was meant to be protected by one of the four sons of Horus. Now, the names of the four sons of Horus I cannot pronounce, so I did not include them here, but you can google that if you listeners if you want to know. But if I was to show you a picture of what the jars look like, you would be like, "Oh yeah, I know what those are. And the the jars, one is in the shape of a baboon, one is a falcon, one is a jackal, and the other one has a human form. So they are created in the image of the four sons of Horus, which their job was to, you know, kind of protect and keep those things safe in the afterlife. So, yes. Okay. Now, the next step in the process of mummification was to remove all of the moisture from the body. And this essentially turned the corpse into a very large piece of human jerky, (laughs) which is one of my favorite snacks. (laughs) Mine too. This was accomplished by covering the corpse with a thick layer of natron, which is a form of salt. Packets of natron were also inserted into the body cavities to aid in the drying process. Once fully dried, the priests would wash away the natron and any of the areas of the body that collapsed, they would uh, stuff in wads of linen to kind of add bulk and add shape back to the body. They would add fake eyes uh, to give the, the corpse or the mummified corpse a more natural appearance. The corpse was then tightly and delicately wrapped in strips of cut linen dipped in plant resins. The entire mummification process took about 70 days to complete, which I I did not know. I didn't know that either. The first 35 days were focused on removing the organs and dehydrating the body. And then the last 35 days were focused on meticulously wrapping the body. So 35 days they spent wrapping one body. That is insane. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they even went as far as, like I mentioned before, wrapping each individual finger and toe, and then they would go back and uh, wrap like the whole, the whole foot or hand. So, but 35 days, that seems like a lot to me. Right. And I don't know the death rates back then. I I was just thinking that. (laughs) It was probably a full-time job, but I, and also I think mummification was reserved for people of importance. So maybe it wasn't a full-time job, but I digress. (laughs) (laughs) Mummification, as I like to call human jerky, was one of the first forms of body preservation and it proved quite effective. 
standing the test of time even to this day. If the remains are stored in a humidity-controlled environment, pretty much will last forever. I think you can argue and say that it is probably the best form of body preservation of all time. That's why we had to start there. Yeah, we had to start there, of course. But (laughs) it wasn't just the Egyptians who were practicing mummification. Other ancient cultures like the Aztecs, Mayans, Tibetans, Ethiopians, they all practiced a combination of embalming and mummification to preserve their dead. Embalming is believed to date back even further to around 5,000 to 6,000 BC. And there was um, a recent discovery by archaeologists in Peru that shows that the Chincoro culture was using a preservation method that involved injecting a chemical solution into the arteries of the deceased to delay decomposition. So this is fairly new, like probably within the last year. Damn. And this, it predates the Egyptians. That's really weird. I wonder what was all in that chemical base. I want to know too. And I think probably if I dug into like actual research articles published by the people who made the discovery, I could probably get a little more detail on that. But I just wanted to pull out the information that this was something that was happening even further back than we ever thought. That is insane. Yeah. All right. So this next one I'm really excited about. (laughs) (laughs) We're We're going to move on to the next. Jerky to candy. Yeah, jerky to candy. Exactly. (laughs) So we're going to move a little bit further ahead in time. Another form of body preservation that is pretty sweet involves (laughs) the use of honey. Honey has unique antimicrobial and antiseptic property. It is low in moisture and has very high sugar content, which acts kind of the same way that salt does in its ability to preserve. Honey even has the ability to suck water out of bacteria. So because of these facts, honey's unique properties give it a really long shelf life. Edible honey has been found in tombs dating back thousands of years. I don't know who was the person that tested that to see if the honey was still edible, but it makes sense as to why the ancient cultures would have used it to preserve a body. It probably had a very sweet smell, which would have been more pleasant than like the alternatives. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the more famous documented cases of the use of honey, it takes place in the year 323 BC. Alexander the Great was submerged in a sarcophagus full of honey in order to preserve his body so that it could travel and be on display in the public without decomposing. So he's one of the more prominent figures that I can think of that was um, actually preserved in that way. That's crazy. I had heard of that prior. I studied Alexander the Great for a little while, and I never knew that that was actually true because there's so many legends that surround him as a person. And that is fucking insane. Yeah. I'm going to blow your mind on this next one. I didn't know about this next one. So this is my fun macabre discovery. The use of honey was not always so sweet and pure. One form of macabre body preservation used honey to turn humans 
into rock candy. This process is called mellification. Feel free to look it up, listeners. The process of mellification dates back to 12th century Arabia. What is so morbid and macabre about this practice is that it was a form of self-sacrifice or self-mummification, meaning it started while the person was alive. What? This was a choice. This was a choice. Yeah. Holy men of Arabia who were approaching the end of their lives would go through the process of self-mummification by consuming nothing but honey. They'd eat it, drink it, bathe in it to the point where their bodies would release honey in various ways, as I'm sure you can probably imagine. And they would repeat. (laughs) Isn't this gross? Yeah. (laughs) They would repeat this process until it killed them. The copious amount of honey would eventually crystallize their body from the inside out. And after they died, they would take this a step further. They would be submerged in giant jars of honey. Some of the reports say that they filled stone coffins with honey and they would leave them in this state for at least 100 years, if not more. And then, wait, that's not all. And this is where it gets really gross. This is the macabre, the macabre of macabre of this type of preservation. Oh my God. You know, I have to, I always have to take it to the next level. And that's what we do here on Macabre. Heck yeah. After a century or so had passed, the body was removed from its honey immersion. And then this sweet, sugary human confection was broken up into little pieces and sold at local bazaars as a cure all for ailments and broken bones. Human human rock candy, anyone? What? Yeah. I'm sure it was considered like some kind of sacred, you know, like we have the snake oil salesman and all that. They, I just, I can't, I can't even with that. I could see that being a thing, especially with like holy connotations and having ingesting something pure. But uh, oh man. And maybe the element of self sacrifice played into that too. You know, they looked at these people as it's not really a martyr, but it definitely is. <laughs> I mean, it, for someone to be willing to do that, yeah. I don't know. But lucky for me, I'm not a sweet tooth kind of person. I'm more of a savory. Unfortunately for me, I am a sweet tooth person. And this is like, I don't think I am ever going to be able to eat rock candy ever again. Rock candy was always a little bit too much for me anyways. But now definitely I, I will never look at rock candy the same. If you go into a candy store, and this is just going to be something that's probably ingrained in your mind forever now. You better ask how old that fucking piece of candy is. (laughs) Where did this come from? (laughs) Are we talking Middle East? Uh, Where? (laughs) So, yeah, that's kind of uh, the whole fun around nullification. And I think now we probably need to skip ahead a little bit further in time to actually get to the details of embalming and kind of where that all started. Let's 
talk about the origins of embalming and the rise of the death industrial complex, because that is also kind of plays hand in hand, to be honest. So it really does. Okay. Well, Europeans used embalming techniques during the Renaissance period, and they were using it to make scientific progress in the study of human anatomy. Embalming and preservation techniques included everything from a proprietary blend of chemicals, salt brine, concentrated alcohol, potash, and various herbs and spices, and they even injected wax into the ventricles. Now, one very famous artist, you might recognize his name, Leonardo da Vinci, he relied on the practice of embalming in order to make his accurate anatomical sketches. It's even documented that he dissected at least 30 cadavers in his lifetime, and he performed the embalmings himself. So, what? yeah, it's documented that he used a combination of turpentine, oil of lavender, vermilion, wine, rosin, sodium nitrate, and potassium, and he also used wax. So when you look at that anatomical sketch that da Vinci is famous for, you'll now know <laughs> how he did it and some of the things he, you know, the techniques he used to be able to do that. I am not even surprised. Like I knew... I knew that he did that. I just didn't realize he did it that many times. (laughs) I guess he needed to get all up in there. You know what I mean? To really look at everything. So yeah, they, uh, he, he claims to have dissected at least 30 in his lifetime. Damn. Good. on Yeah. Yeah. And, (laughs) and because, you know, that time was a time of, medical and science and discovery, this practice of embalming continued to grow in Europe. And it wasn't until later that embalming for the use of burial was developed. So initially it was just for purely for study purposes, but then um, for burial reasons, embalming was pioneered by a Scottish surgeon by the name of William Hunter. And Hunter's brother, who just happened to be a man of opportunity and a savvy businessman, would learn the technique, and he began to offer this service to the public for a fee, of course, right? You have to take something, (laughs) you have to, you know, find a way to make money off of everything. Exactly. Yeah. And this need for embalming as a pre-burial practice grew even further in the 1800s and eventually crossed the pond into the U.S. in 1865. Now, can you guess why this time frame would have been important? I just want to put you on the spot. Mm. Well, based on our past episode with cadavers. There was also something else that was happening around that time, which was the Civil War. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. During that time, yeah, during that time in society, the perception of death and the afterlife, and you know, we've talked about this, the kind of the idea during the Victorian era was that you had to have what was called a good death, meaning that the dying person was at home, they were surrounded by loved ones, and the deceased could, or soon to be deceased, I should say, could say a few words to make peace with God 
And this ultimately would allow their spirit to move on to the afterlife. But with the onset of the Civil War, soldiers and their families faced uncertainty about the destination of the soul. In the early stages of the Civil War, the loss of life was so extreme that the fallen soldiers were often left on the battlefield to decompose or they were buried in massive graves simply because they had no other choice. And in most cases, the corpses were unable to be identified later. And this did not fit the criteria of a good death. And without a good death, a person's soul was destined for the pits of hell. Mm. Now think about that for a moment. These soldiers walked onto the battlefield not knowing the fate of their lives and the conflict they would face. And the very essence of their souls was at the risk of being doomed to spend an eternity in hell. I cannot imagine yeah. how terrifying that would be just for many, many reasons. Yeah. And to not have any control over it, you know, obviously they're wanting a good death, but they're coming face to face with something that they have no was control bigger. over. Yeah. yeah, it was bigger than them. And with this significant loss of life, the need for body preservation really reached a point of desperation. Families wanted this for their loved ones. They wanted them to be able to have a good, a good death. Now, this next part that I'm going to share surprised me. <laughs> there is a very famous political figure who happened to have a job as a grave digger in his younger years, and he may have well been the catalyst to the rise of the death industrial complex. And that man was Abraham Lincoln. Oh, I knew he was a grave digger, but I didn't know it was that significant. Damn. Yeah. Well, I'll tell I'll fill you in on the story, but it kind of makes sense when you hear how everything plays out. Obviously, he had one vision of death and he had a lot of tragedy in his life. Um, but kind of the political climate at the time there wasn't a lot of support for the Civil War. Like at one point, the support shifted and, you know, they're just seeing death everywhere and just there's no way for people to get the bodies home. And Lincoln, eventually what he did was he was like, we have to put a stop to just having these massive graves and people just laying around the battlefield. So he dedicated the Gettysburg National Cemetery and set a new precedent that uh, launched a movement to create a final resting place for fallen soldiers near the battlefields. So there were additional sites created in various towns and cities near battle sites. This allowed, you know, a place to like kind of have the rituals and the interment of the body and families were, a lot of families were better with that option because there was no way to transport the bodies and keep them from decomposing. It gave them a little bit more peace about what was happening. But then when the first Union officer was killed in the Civil War, his name was Colonel Elmer Ellsworth. This guy just happened to be a former clerk at Lincoln's law office. And he was what? a very, yeah, he was a very close friend of Lincoln's. Now, this, get, this is where it gets interesting. Because of kind of what was going on at that time and for a lack of support of the war, some people think that Lincoln might have used this personal loss to gain the people's support for the war. 
what he did was he took the opportunity to have Ellsworth's body transported to the deceased home in New York. And the the goal was to kind of make multiple stops along the way so that the people could see this officer and, you know, kind of to rally the troops, so to speak. So there was a full-on spectacle. And it worked. He got the result that he was hoping for. And it rallied the masses and helped regain the the public support of the war. It was only possible because there was a businessman, surprise, surprise, who yeah, for real. <laughs> saw he saw an opportunity to market his embalming services, something that he had been working to perfect for some time. And that man's name was Thomas Holmes. Holmes utilized a method that involved flushing chemicals like arsenic. Oh, I see what AS- you did there. Yeah, arsenic, mercury, and alcohol through the body with a pump that he had invented. Some of the uh, sources that I looked at said that he kind of stole some of the concoctions from the French, but that he developed the pump himself and kind of like honed in on the technique. And he volunteered his service. Yeah, he volunteered his services to Lincoln and said, hey, I'll do this for you. I'll preserve this body. And that's what, that's kind of where this all takes off. This is really weird. <laughs> I had no idea. And I'm not even surprised that a businessman is going to make profit out of literally anything that he can. Well, and the connection to Abraham Lincoln, and this really was, this was the launching point for the rise of the death industrial complex. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> oh. <laughs> With the success of this method of body preservation, Holmes was actually employed by the president to train new embalmers. And so this big industry of embalming emerged. Soldiers were even charged pre-embalming services, and that was that. Soldiers could have a good death for the price of whatever it was they were charging at the time. But these services weren't always on the up and up. As you can imagine, everyone came out of the woodworks to become an embalmer. So low-level embalmers were paid about $30 per body to embalm an enlisted soldier, and they'd get even more if they were embalming an officer, like $80, which is a lot of money. I don't know if that's That's $80 today or $80 back then, but either way, they were making money off for that time. Yeah. Yeah. These self-proclaimed embalmers with varying degrees of skills came from all over, stalking the battlefields to make quick cash. They hovered near the battlefield like hungry vultures, waiting to feast upon the dead in exchange for money. Some soldiers were even embalmed without their family's permission, and then they were held by the embalmers for a ransom until the family could pay up. What? Yeah. Oh, there's always a dirty business. There's always a dirty business. There's always something macabre. It always like escalates, which I find interesting in in doing this research is you get down this rabbit hole of just human greed and turning a disaster into profit. And the lengths that people take, it it is astounding to me sometimes on how how low low people are willing to get sometimes. Yeah, for real. Yeah. Embalming services were done ethically and by the wishes of the family, 
Embalming ensured that Union soldiers who died on the battlefield could be preserved and shipped by train to their families for burial without decomposing while in transit. So good came out of it, obviously. Um, Right. And fun fact, Abraham Lincoln was the first U.S. president to be embalmed. It was his buddy, good old Holmes, who actually did his embalming as well. That's awesome. Yeah, the the preservation of Lincoln's body, as you probably know, listeners probably know, after he was assassinated, he was transported by train all over the U.S. so that he could his body could be shown to the public and made multiple stops um, in the U.S. And this guy, Holmes, he claims to have embalmed at least 4,000 Union soldiers during the Civil War. Like, he personally did that many embalmings holy shit that's a lot yeah it's a lot it's a lot lot of death it's a lot to think about one person doing i i'm just astounded because you think of even in today's society that's still so many but to just have that one time frame of your life that is consumed by that i mean how do you not come out of that changed (laughs) yeah you'd have to look at life differently i would be curious to see what the rest of his life was like and also as we talked earlier about what chemicals were used oh yeah exactly i can't imagine that he i want to know did he live a long life or did he have a lot of illness (laughs) to be honest i didn't even look into it because it wasn't like a focus i i am interested to see now because it you know, I'm curious. Maybe, maybe you can Google that while I keep, um, yeah, just I'm maybe look, look at, that. and then I'll keep talking about basically because he was so successful with this practice as a pre burial practice, it became widely accepted by the public and it became an even more standardized practice in the 1890s. When undertakers took over the practice, started offering it to the public as a service. This is when the term undertaker was changed to the title of mortician. And the business of embalming really took off and was being used uh, more commonly. And surprise, surprise, as we said, from the Civil War to about 1910, arsenic was the main ingredient used in the embalming fluids. And on average, 4 to 12 pounds of arsenic was used per body. What? That's a lot of arsenic. (laughs) Pounds. 4 to 12 pounds was used per body. And listeners, if you, for some reason, skipped A is for arsenic in our pilot episode, you need to go back and listen to that. Apparently, arsenic was in everything during the 19th century. If it didn't kill you, if it didn't kill you while you were alive, (laughs) you were going to be filled with it after you died. Yeah. It was the all-encompassing way of life. It was just bad (laughs) juju. And and because embalming is not like a long-term solution, it's it's temporary. It is purely for the short-term delaying decomposition. And this in itself caused a big problem. Because arsenic in its elemental form doesn't degrade or break down in the body over time. So when a corpse (laughs) decomposes, 
the fluids eventually leak in the ground, contaminating it. And yeah. it's estimated that during that period in time, a cemetery could easily contain as much as one ton of arsenic below ground. And this would leak into Ooh. like the groundwater and yeah. And imagine how many across the nation, imagine how many graveyards are next to crop fields. And oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there is a lot of cemeteries, obviously, holding graves from that time period. Ooh, it makes you wonder. Yeah, it makes I you found, wonder. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, just the, we were just talking about chemical impacts and, oh, that took me off guard and it shocked me more than it pro- probably, you know, which was why I was speechless there for a little while. And yeah, that, that shit freaks me out. Did you find did. anything? Do you, you find something on Holmes? I did. So he was born in 1817. Guess when he died? Oh. 1899. So he lived a long time. A long ass time. Especially for that time frame in history where a lot of things still killed you. Either he was a very lucky, healthy man. Well, he was wealthy. He was wealthy, he was too. Wealthy. And or. Maybe he was kind of like indirectly embalming himself. <laughs> like sort of like pre- preserved himself maybe in some yeah. way. Picking yeah. Himself. No, I'm surprised. I'm surprised by that. I am too. I'm really surprised. Especially yeah. with mercury and arsenic together. I thought he would have died like shortly after the Civil War. <laughs> that was Same. maybe my guess. Especially when yeah. just in the Civil War alone, embalming over 4,000. Imagine over his lifespan then. Ooh, that's a lot yeah, of I wonder. I wonder if he got out of the game after that because he, he did. He kind of launched this, the death industrial complex. Like he and Abraham Lincoln were kind of the people who set that in motion. Um, and I think after you do that for such a period of time, he probably had enough money to where he could probably train people, but he probably didn't need to, to be honest. Right. He probably just, he probably got out of the game. I don't know for sure. But, but yeah, so that went on for a while. And then in 1867, a German chemist by the name of August Wilhelm von Hoffmann discovered the use of formaldehyde, a naturally occurring organic compound containing carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And he discovered it as a body stiffening agent, which changed the embalming techniques and eliminated the need to use arsenic. So it was in 1867 that kind of shifted to the use of formaldehyde. So Good thank goodness. For, yeah. Thank yeah. goodness for that. Thank goodness for that. And and this method wasn't widely used in pre-burial practices for some time because it wasn't something that was in like mass production so it 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 didn't really change as far as like who had access to it until they were able to create larger quantities and then they were able to actually transport it and once that happened then it was like everybody used it you know what i mean i wonder how long that transformation took yeah i i don't know um i probably should have dug into that a little bit more but 
the way this episode has been going, I felt like it was going to run really long. <laughs> no worries. We still have to, it's just we still so have, crazy. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. And we, we still have to talk about how it's actually done. So we're going to get into the gruesome yeah. part of that. But it, it did become a standardized method. And with the timing of uh, cadavers, we talked about body snatching. This was the thing that actually put an end to body snatching. This was it. As soon as embalming became standardized, there was no need to steal corpses anymore because they could preserve them. And this was the thing that kind of tipped the scales on that. Right. Ooh. Imagine so go back how and... long in time that took to not body snatch. Yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to C is for Cadaver, episode three, and you want to learn more about body snatching, go back and listen to that episode. Now, you've made it this far. <laughs> Yay. If you didn't have enough macabre so far in this episode, uh, now is the time where if you are squeamish or things of a surgical nature turn your stomach, you can probably just end it now and then we'll see you on the next episode but if you are interested then we're just going to get into uh the actual kind of techniques of embalming and yeah so here we go first i think it's important to know who embalms people in the u.s licensed embalmers perform embalmings thank god for that it's not just yeah your plumbers or your whatever that we're doing it back in the day. This is a separate position within a funeral home than the funeral director in most cases. But sometimes funeral directors also learn to embalm. Uh, that's I'm sure it's a business choice. But then we need to know how it's done. Before embalming can take place, there are certain preparations that have to be done by the caretaker. The first step is confirming that the person is actually dead, which Thank God for this. Personally, that's one of my irrational fears. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm very glad that that's step one. <laughs> yeah. So they, they actually look for signs of lividity, which if you don't know what that means, after you die and your body is in a certain position, the blood will pool and that's how they can tell like that's lividity. They'll look for um, cloudiness in the corneas. They'll look to see if the body is stiff, has any stiffness to it. So that's step one. And then once that's confirmed, the body is washed and sanitized with a disinfectant and germicidal solution. They massage the limbs and kind of move them around to help relax rigor mortis or stiffness of the body. And this kind of like allows the body to sort of relax a little bit um, and have a more natural kind of posture. They will place caps uh, underneath the eyelids and then glue the eyes shut with surgical glue. Are you still with me? <laughs> I am. Oh, I'm just thinking, of, I, I'm stuck on the massage. And I'm like, it's got to be the best fucking massage of your life. And unfortunately, <laughs> you're not even there to enjoy it. No, you are not. <laughs> now, this next part, I almost skipped. I was like, let me just... um like give like a real brief summary on it because this kind of stuff makes me really cringy. But then I'm like, no, that's what we're here for. We're here to talk yeah. about things that are uncomfortable. We are. So, 
<laughs> when suturing the mouth shut, suture string is threaded through the lower jaw below the gums, up and through the gums of the top front teeth, into the right or left nostril, through the septum, into the other nostril, and back down into the mouth. And then the two ends of the suture string are tied together. That makes the nerve damage in my face hurt. <laughs> oh, we're not done yet. Oh. <laughs> if the jaw is wired shut, a tool called a needle injector is often used to insert a piece of wire anchored to a needle into the upper jaw and the lower jaws. The wires are tied together to securely close the mouth. And once the jaw has been secured, the mouth can be kind of moved around a little bit to get it into like whatever looks like a natural positioning. I was going to ask about that. Like, how are you positioning? I mean, things happen. Things don't look normal. And I wonder how hard it is to really do that. Yeah, I think it depends on the situation. Obviously, if there's a lot of damage to the body, the face, that's when someone may just opt for like a closed casket situation. There's a whole industry for mortuary makeup and you know, that's a whole other thing that they do to kind of try to make the person look more like they did in their, uh, in their lifetime. But yeah, how's that for some nightmare fuel? Oh, yeah. I'm just, I'm just like having a moment of reflection on a a procedure I had. Oh, no. uh, (laughs) Like, I can... I can imagine what that would kind of even feel like. Mm, no. And it is not a fun time. I- I'm glad that we won't have to know. <laughs> let's hope not. Let's yeah, hope not. Let's let's hope not. This process that you know kind of leading up to that, they actually call it setting in place and the goal is basically to make the body look like it's in a more relaxed state, more natural. Uh, so that it can be presented, you know, and not be so alarming, I guess, if that's the right. thing. And then there are actually four key components in the embalming process. So we just got through the setting in place. Now we're actually going to get into the embalming technique. Oofda. What a way to begin. <laughs> My- Macabre is not for the faint of heart. I feel like I should start every episode with that. It's in the intro leading to the episode, but I feel like I need to reiterate that. It's not for the faint of heart. This Indeed. next part is not for the faint of heart. And I I don't want to ever seem like I'm making light of this. I'm not. I think it's important for people to know, and I'm going to lead this somewhere. There is an end point to this. Um, let's get into it. Yeah. So the the four key components of the embalming process are arterial embalming, which they call it drainage. The funeral director injects embalming fluids into the blood vessels. This actually forces the other bodily fluids to expel from the jugular vein. So they must make like an incision, maybe insert a tube there, and then you can imagine yeah. what happens. Next is what they call cavity embalming. The body's internal fluids are displaced with the same embalming fluids. They use an instrument called a trocar. It's inserted into a small incision directly above the navel. 
and is pushed into the stomach and the chest cavities. This drains the gas and the fluids from the hollow organs. The cavities are then filled with embalming fluid. The next step is hypodermic embalming. A needle is used on areas of the body that the arterial embalming can't reach. So they just use like hypodermic needle, you know, to kind of do the touch-ups. And then the final step is called surface embalming. And it's exactly what you think. It's a method of using embalming chemicals at the surface level where there's damage, like you mentioned, to different areas of the body or caused by early decomposition. They have to kind of address those things, um, you know, as quickly as possible. And then after that, everyone rots eventually because embalming can only preserve a body for about 10 years, sometimes less, but uh, the facts I found said about 10 years. To wrap up the episode, I wanted to leave you some worm food for thought. Things Things you might not have known about embalming and body preservation. The embalming process adds a very significant amount of weight to a body. People can weigh from 250 to 400 pounds when they have embalming fluid in them, which I did not know. I can believe that. I have been a Paul Bear before, and it makes you wonder, like, how heavy is the actual coffin versus what's inside? Literally, my next line after that was, that's probably why it takes so many people to carry a casket. It's not just the weight of the casket. It's the added weight of the embalming fluid. That is insane. I I didn't realize it was that much extra. Yeah, because if you think about it, it's it's everywhere in your body. It's literally right. everywhere. So like if you imagine your stomach is full, like, you know... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you step on a scale after a big meal, you're going to weigh a few little extra. But um, yeah, right. that's too, too an extreme. Um, the other thing is embalming, current embalming isn't as bad as it was for the environment as arsenic was, but it is not at all an eco-friendly choice. And embalming fluid will still leak into the ground and we're still talking about chemicals and it's different than arsenic, but still not. What I would call different. <laughs> yeah, not not an eco-friendly solution either. And to be honest, I didn't know that you could opt out of that option. You do not have to be embalmed no. when you die. If you're going through a funeral process and you can just say you don't want to be embalmed. And to be honest, a lot of people think that it's, again, it's that whole like death industrial complex mm-hmm. and it's another way for money to be made. And people might yeah. just think that they have to, but you don't have to. You can opt out of that. Exactly. Uh, another option is cremation. There's actually more cremation now than there are burials, but cremation is also not environmentally friendly at all. Mm-hmm. It actually causes a lot of CO2 emissions and like a lot, a lot. Some estimates suggest that cremations in the U.S. account for about 360,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions every year. Holy shit. But believable when you think about all of the gases that are in our bodies and releasing with, you know, the things that are installed in the incinerator and 
yeah, the process of like how high the heat has to be and Mm -hmm. however they're using that. But there are actually some environmentally friendly afterlife options that most people might not be aware of. And one of them that is a little bit newer is called um, water cremation. Have you heard of that? I have, but I don't know anything about it. I'm very curious. Okay. So this technique is currently legal in 26 U.S. states. Not sure about other countries. I think you can Google that. And I'm sorry that I didn't include the statistics. But basically, the process involves using a water tank. It's like a special type of water tank. And there's a solution of alkaline chemicals mixed with flowing water. And the water is heated to around 300 degrees in order to dissolve the bonds in the body tissues. And when the, like, I don't know how long it takes, but this happens for a while. And then eventually, once the process is complete, it yields a sterile liquid. So it's just a combination of amino acids, peptides, salts, sugars, and soaps, which can actually be disposed down a drain at the alkaline hydrolysis facility. So it's completely sterile, completely safe for the environment. And then all that's left are the bones. And the bones are handled kind of in the same way that they would be if someone was cremated. They get ground down to a fine powder and they can be returned to, um, you know, the loved ones just as ashes would be returned, essentially. That is really interesting. Yeah, I think there's one actually here in Oregon. Um, really? So, mm-hmm. Yep. Huh. And how uh, new is this? I want to say like the probably the the idea of utilizing it is newer, but the technique I think maybe be, maybe dates to like the seventies. You could probably old. go. You could probably yeah. You could probably Google that. Um, Damn, I'm gonna as look well. that up because I was thinking like oh within like the last like five years or something. No, I, I want to say, and don't quote me on that. It could be, could be, but this particular thing is starting to be more used and it is now legal in 26 states, which that's, you know, more than half. Um, and I think it will continue to, to, to grow and be more accepted. The other option is Um, You can check with like cemeteries in your area, but there are cemeteries that are starting to embrace what is called a natural natural burial, which basically means that you can opt out of the embalming. And obviously like your viewing and showing like that might change because you're not preserved. So it might have to be done very quickly, but, or just have like a memorial and not have to view the body, but they basically would wrap you in a shroud, place you in a wooden box, like a thin wooden box that would break down naturally over time. And then you would just be buried and your body would decompose naturally and everything that is utilized in that process would kind of break down and just return to the earth. And you would be basically feeding new life and become a part of the earth in the way that we were probably intended to. Yeah, exactly. I think that would probably be the most perfect natural way, just because obviously 
it's a natural process, of course. And I feel like even though we have some pretty noxious gases and chemicals within our own bodies, it, it we're already kind of part of the earth and it's it's more natural. I did find yeah. when it uh, the you? aquamation was oh damn it. No, just kidding. I'm gonna keep looking. Okay. My uh so... my autocorrect did Aquaman not <laughs> We're not looking at Aquaman right now, but and yeah, so that is just my brief history on body preservation techniques throughout time. And I'm sure there are a lot that I didn't cover, but just for the sake of trying to keep the episode within kind of the same time frames that we have been um, aiming for in the past. And honestly, I just encourage you to do your research and make informed decisions for yourself and don't fall into the trap of you have to do this certain thing and spend some funerals cost up to $30,000 and you do whatever yeah. is right for you. But I think it's important just to have at least the information that's available. And that's part of what we're doing here on Macabre is we talk about things that are uncomfortable and talk about the way society has certain ideas about things and I didn't know that you could opt out of embalming. That's just me, I guess, being ignorant. I just thought that was something that you do if yeah. you're buried. Right. Otherwise, you choose cremation, and that's not the case. Right. And honestly, I would not have known if I didn't have to go through a funeral planning process. And it, it blew yeah. my mind at the time. And it is actually, it, in my opinion, I... I think it is absolutely disgusting at how much funerals cost. I don't think it, I really do not think that people should be making that much money off of a loss. It is. Yeah. If you've never been through it, I count yourself very lucky. And I apologize for those of you who have, because you know, it. it's unfortunate. Uh, I did find yeah. the real <laughs> Aquamation, not okay. Aquaman. Uh, it looks like, it was first developed in the early 90s. Uh, and okay, so did you find one that went back further? It must have just been like perfected at that point because it looks like it was originally designed to deal with mad cow disease. Oh, wow. Okay, fun yeah. fact. Fun fact, that's weird. Yeah, so you know, and, and just because my interest as we're doing research on these topics, I found a book that I'm almost finished with it and I would highly recommend and it's called Over My Dead Body. It's not about it's not about body preservation. Honestly, it's about cemeteries in the US. It does touch on some outside of the US, but it's like the history of cemeteries and what rich history they have, how they certain cemeteries were started. Um there's some controversy around certain cemeteries and like how they acquired the land. And it just really is fascinating. It even talks about segregation in cemeteries. And I would highly recommend the author's last name is Melville. And it's a fairly new book. I think it came out in 2021, um, but it's called Over My Dead Body. And I highly recommend it. Yeah. When you mentioned to this, this to me prior, I'm like, I, this is definitely on my reading list now. There was one chapter that made me cry. <laughs> and oh, no. it's, yeah, I just, it's eye-opening about the segregation of blacks and whites and, 
you know, going back to the Civil War and slavery. And it was it was eye opening and, you know, a lot about like our founding fathers and slavery and just, yeah, stuff that you would not know about. You know what I mean? Again, we we learn things in history that are sugar coated and a lot of things are left out. Yeah. 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 So highly recommend if you have an interest in that, it's not macabre in the way that our show is macabre, <laughs> but it is very eye-opening. It's a really amazing, amazing book. I can't wait to read it. Yeah. I can send it to you once I, I get done if you want. We I can do can. a book exchange. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> I like that. We should do that. And, and and I think for listeners too, that might be something that we do at some point is is talk about what books we're reading, you know, things that we can share like, oh, I read this book. It's really interesting and just start a conversation because it's hard to find. And actually, I just got, I just ordered a few new books, which I'll share with you. Um, yes, please. I just got done reading an interesting one too. You? What was it? It was called The Dark Archives, and it is written by a librarian. <gasps> I named, have this in my cart. Yes. Named, uh, she, Megan Rosenblum. Do you yes. have that one? Yes. I don't, oh I don't gosh. have the book, but yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. It came up in my books you should read. Yes. I highly recommend it. She goes on the hunt for books that are bound in human skin and the process that they go through to find if they're legitimate books and with real human skin or if they're copies and the stories that surround each book is insane and they're a very well-known uh rumor would be that harvard actually has books that are bound in human skin in their library. That is not a rumor that has com- that has been confirmed to be true. We have to do an episode on that. I you think have we to do. do an episode on that. <laughs> I think that would be amazing. Yeah. So, okay. So I'll share a couple that I ordered. And by the way, I use Amazon a lot. I know that's not great, but I also shop locally. So yes. I try to find a balance. Me too. But there is access, you know, ex- access to books that you might not find not might not be able to find locally. Um, there's one called Mystery of the Exploding Teeth. What? Yeah, it's all about medical, macabre medical things Ooh. back in the day. There's one book called You Don't Want to Know. That's like a collection of all the stuff you don't want to know and you don't know. That is so that because now yep. I do want to know. <laughs> I do want to know. And I mean, this is all research for me for future episodes. Uh, I also picked up The Butchering Art. Oh. Which is about the grisly world of Victorian medicine. Awesome. These are all new to me. I have never heard of them. Yeah, maybe I'll take a screenshot of the images and put it on our Facebook group at some point. Uh, the last one is called Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything. I have heard of that one. And I yeah. actually, 
I should add that to my list now because that's kind of popped up in my searches a few times. Yep. And then we can talk about it. Heck yeah. So yeah, this has been, this is E for embalming because everyone rots eventually unless you're mummified or mellified. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So sorry to give, sorry to give you all nightmares. I will probably have nightmares with the whole like suturing thing. I have a thing about mouths and string and nightmares. That's like a common nightmare for me. So Really? Oh, I am sorry. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. thanks. I just, yeah. I, it brought back the whole oh, procedure I had done that. Oof. But I, I think I will uh, skip on the honey in my tea today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still going to have it. <laughs> I'm just not going to have rock candy. And actually, uh, one of the big, one of the conferences I was at recently, they were, um, they did like a coffee bar type thing and they had brown sugar rock candy, like swizzle sticks, (laughs) Oh, which is actually quite nice. (laughs) That's very nice. I like that. It was very nice. mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listeners, uh, what do we have coming up next? Blair, what's on your your deck for... We have F is for Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it is. I, uh, in my research and when I was just kind of writing up the book summary, I was feeling a little sassy. So it might bring a kind of funny take on the book, but just so you know, I, I felt a little sassy, so... <laughs> it might be a sassy episode. <laughs> I love it. I love Mary Shelley. I love I do too. That time frame and kind of what she did. So I'm really excited to hear your presentation of that. And she had a very interesting life. Yeah. Yeah. Which will be fun to talk about. Um, yeah. And then I have a G episode coming up, which is going to be our first true crime oh, episode. I am excited. It'll be a long one. There's a good chance it'll end up being a two-part, which if it does, we'll drop the second episode. Instead of, you know, we do bi-weekly episodes, the second episode will just drop the very next week. And that'll mm-hmm. just be like a bonus if if we end up going that long, which there's a good chance that we might. I think that's yeah. a stellar plan. I'm so excited. Yeah. And I have purposefully not looked into this because I want to be shocked. Good. You will be. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the worst for sure. Um, okay. So where to find us, uh, for people who have been listening, you're probably going to get tired of hearing this, but for new listeners, you can find us on Facebook, just search macabre podcast and you'll find us there. We encourage you to engage, you know, if you find some neat macabre stuff on the internet, memes, whatever, feel free to share those with uh, the rest of the group. Uh, our website is macabrepod.com. You can leave us a up to five minute recording and we encourage you to do so if you have any hometown macabre stories, which I'm going to be doing my first hometown macabre story very soon. I'm so excited. Yeah, I know. I can't wait to share it (laughs) with you. But yeah, tell us um, what you want to hear. If you have a story you want to share, you can share up to five minutes. And if you run out of time, just go right back on there and send us another one. So we want to hear what you have to say. And then the other way to reach us would be by email. You can send an email to that's so macabre at 
gmail.com. We want to chat with you. Please reach out. Yeah. Yeah. We, we want to hear your macabre stories. Definitely. We know you have them. Don't keep them a secret from us. <laughs> All right. Well, we did it. We did it. That was a wild ride. Wild. <laughs> wild. And I rightfully don't have a sweet tooth, so I'm well, I'm okay with that. I do, I'll stick but to I'm my starting jerky. to rethink it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. We okay. will see you later, Hallie. See ya. Bye.